Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we lovingly pour science into the reward systems of your brain. I'm Mark West, and on this edition of Diffusion, we'll feature the science of reward, the science and physics of radio, and the best scientific pickup lines that are out there. But first up, here is the news with Victoria Bond. A weak activation of pleasure centers in the brain while you eat could contribute to obesity. While recent studies indicate that the obese feel less pleasure while eating than people who are not, and would absorb more food to compensate, this is the first research that shows this biological link. The degree of intensity of the reaction of the brain circuitry associated with pleasure following consumption of chocolate milk can help predict, in young women, which ones will get fat. This phenomenon was particularly apparent in people with a genetic variation in the brain's pleasure centers that reduces the production of dopamine. Dopamine is a small molecule that ensures the communication between neurons, brain cells, and plays a role in the desire and sensations of pleasure. Eating triggers in the production of dopamine and the degree of pleasure is linked to the amount of dopamine produced. So this research showed that obese people may have fewer dopamine receptors in their brains, which leads to consume more to compensate for the shortfall of pleasure. So it seems that they're pleasure addicts in a way. Well, they're not getting enough pleasure from the food, so they're compelled to eat more. Is that the theory? Maybe not pleasure addicts, but they get less than we do, so they have to eat more to feel the way non-obese people do. It's a sad world. Yes. Well, we have some more brain news here coming out of the US, UCLA, searching the internet dramatically engages brain neural networks. Now, this was a study that was done at UCLA with the principal investigator, Dr. Gary Small, who's a professor at the Semmel Institute for Neuroscience and Human Behaviour. What we know so far about the brain is that when the brain ages, there are a number of structural and functional changes. This includes atrophy, which means your brain cells get smaller, reductions in cell activities and increases in the deposits of amyloid plaques, which are some of the culprits we believe are responsible for things like Alzheimer's disease. And as a result of that, keeping your brain active and keeping your brain engaged is a very important way of slowing down this aging process. And apparently the internet is a really good way of helping out with this. The actual science in the study involved 24 research volunteers, they were all between the age of 55 and 76, and half of them had had experience searching the internet and half of them hadn't. All of them were reading books as well as a way to keep their brain active, but it was found that the ones that had experience in searching the internet had extra activity in the frontal, temporal and cingulate areas of their brains, which are helping with things like decision making and complex reasoning. So they were getting additional benefits from this. 
The reason that they were able to detect these changes was because they used functional MRI scans to look at the blood flow going through the brain and they found out that these areas were much more active. They found that they didn't get this same level of activity in people that weren't experienced in using the internet. So it appears that if you're not really internet savvy, it's not really helping you that much going online. But if you are internet savvy, it's doing a good job at increasing your brain activity and reducing the effects of aging on your brain. So this is a good excuse to be off searching the internet in your spare time then, is it? It's a perfect excuse to be off searching the internet. And there's measurable improvements. Yes, I suppose it really depends on what you're searching for. But um, as long as there's a lot of activity in your brain, I suppose it's helping reverse the ageing process or at least slowing it down. I like this. Scientific reasons to surf the internet and waste your time. Thank you, and Patrick and Victoria, for the news. And the thing that doesn't often get aired on any form of radio station are the best pickup lines that are out there. And not only the best pickup lines, but the best scientific pickup lines. So if you're a frustrated scientist, if you're perhaps a mathematician that looks at his own feet more than the other sex's eyes, have a listen in now to Victoria as she takes you through some of the lines. Well, actually, it's not Victoria. She's pointing at Patrick here. Have a listen to both of these two as they take you through some of the scientific pickup lines that may help your chances to get lucky. Thank you, Mark, for that uh, that sterling introduction. I'm feeling a bit nervous now because it sounds like this first pickup line is directed at you. <laughs> I wish I were a math problem set, because then I'd be really hard and you'd be doing me on your desk. Uh, have, uh, have you ever used that? I have never used that one, no. In fact, I only really heard about that one a few days ago, and... Yes, it's really, it's an interesting one. It's really quite scary, though, coming from my lips. We have a second one as well. Mm. Baby, I wish I was your derivative, because then I would lie tangent to your curves. You could get lucky. Well, I may be a physicist, but I'm no bore in bed. Hey, Neil's bore line. Anyway, yes, next. Uh, this is this is one that's dear to my heart, being a biologist myself. Um, if I were an enzyme, I would be DNA helicase, so I could unzip your genes. Whoa, very racy. Okay, I've got a follow-up one. I wish you were cos squared x, and I was sine squared x, so together we'd be one. Want to see my linear particle accelerator? <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> who uses that one? I'm sorry. Yes. It's so old-fashioned, they're circular now. Oh. Oh. Well, that puts a whole different spin on it now, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't think it quite works, does it? Different Um, gender. Well, it could do. Oh, I wouldn't... Mm. No, I wouldn't use that. Um, Baby, I wish I were adenine, so I could pair with you. Another biology joke here. I've got a, a trend going, and here's the last one. What's your sign? It must be pi over two, because you're the one. 
Oh, oh dear. It's been too long since I've done maths. Now, last week, we teased you with some of the physics of radio. And now, we're going to finish you off. Listen in as Patrick Ruby takes us on a tour of the science of radio. Let's answer the first question. How do we put sound onto radio waves? First, you create a continuous sine wave at a certain frequency. Then you modulate the sine wave. A very basic type of modulation is pulse modulation, or PM for short. In pulse modulation, you switch the sine wave on and off a specific number of times. This is how Morse code works, through a series of beeps and pauses. Computer binary code is a similar concept, using a series of ones and zeros for its transmission. Unfortunately, pulse modulation is limited in the amount of information it can describe because the tone stays the same. Amplitude modulation, or AM for short, was developed in the early 1900s as a result of the work of scientist Lee DeForest in amplifying radio signals so that more transmissions could be made. The basic principle is to change the amplitude of the sine wave so you can interpose a voice or music on top of the sine wave. The wave will travel at its normal frequency, but its amplitude varies slightly, in sync with the sound overlaid on top of it. If you visualise these waves, they have a normal shape, but look just a little fuzzy around the edges. This is how AM radio and TV pictures are transmitted. Finally, there is frequency modulation, or FM for short. This was invented by Edwin Howard Armstrong in 1933 to improve the radio signal and reduce interference from equipment and surroundings that can cause static. It basically alternates the frequency of the sine wave. The wave will have a normal amplitude, but will have tiny adjustments in the number of cycles per second, corresponding to the frequency of the sound overlaid on top of it. If you visualise these waves, they have a normal amplitude, but will sometimes cycle faster or slower than normal. This is how FM radio, mobile phone signals, and TV sound works. FM usually works at a higher frequency range and produces better quality sound. So perhaps we can take a 107 MHz sine wave, apply a frequency modulation, and end up with 107.3 FM. And now question two. How are they transmitted? The sine wave is amplified and transmitted into space from a transmitting device. Radio stations typically transmit from a radio antenna tower. Other transmitters can include satellite dishes, used to receive and relay radio waves sent from millions of kilometres away. The more powerful the transmission and amplification, the further the signal will go and the more people will be able to pick it up. So the sound travels attached to those sine waves for several kilometres, depending on the transmission. Thousands of sine waves are travelling around us right now. But of course, we can't hear them in the form they are in. We need to convert the radio waves back to sound waves. What y'all want to do? Don't you know we always come in through? Me and my crew, let me hear you say fire up! Say fire up! To all my dogs that stay blooded, roll around in the 500 all day. Let me hear you say fire up! Say fire up! And so the final question. How are radio waves delivered to our ears in a way that we can understand them? 
Once the sine waves have been transmitted into space, they need to be detected and transferred onto an audio or visual device. In the case of radio, an antenna on a car or stereo system will pick up passing sine waves. Antennae are made of metal because it is a good conductor and can transmit the captured sine waves to a tuner. The antenna is indiscriminate. It will pick up potentially thousands of different waves. The tuner isolates a single sine wave when it is switched to a particular frequency. It does this by resonating at that particular frequency, amplifying the sine wave of that frequency, and blocking out sine waves at all other frequencies. Once the tuner has isolated the frequency, a detector is needed to extract the sound signals from the sine wave. Different detectors are used for AM and FM radio. FM radio detectors convert the slight changes in frequency on the sine waves into sound. AM radio detectors clip the sounds of the sine wave using a diode. The converted sounds are further amplified and transferred to speakers or headphones. There, they are released as sound waves and picked up by our ears and interpreted by our brains. Mobile phones work in a similar way, and TVs convert the signals to both images and sounds. You can even make your own radio sounds. www.howstuffworks.com gives you a little experiment. Take a 9-volt battery and a coin. Tune a radio to an AM frequency with static. Bring the battery and coin close to the antenna and touch the coin briefly to the battery electrodes. You might hear a brief change in the static sound on your radio. This is because you have completed the battery circuit and released radio waves from the coin which have been picked up by the antenna. And there you have it. The science of radio broadcast from the studios at 2SER 107.3 FM, Sydney, carried on sine waves to your audio device of choice and converted back to sound waves for you. Thank you, Patrick Ruby, there with the science of radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Now... Oxytocin, dopamine, these are the chemicals of love and of reward. Amy Bullen will now take us into the darkest regions of our brains and find out what really turns us on. Rewards are a great tool in helping us to learn. If you continue to get a reward when you press a lever, you're going to learn how to press that lever and learn to associate that lever with a reward. The reward system operates in a way that is very helpful to human and animal survival. 
The reward system encourages the propagation of the species by rewarding us for falling in love, caring for our children and having sex. All by eliciting pleasurable sensations linked to the dopamine pathways. It's not all good news though. The pleasurable reward gained from eating can lead to obesity if not controlled. And the reward system can be hijacked by drugs that increase the dopamine release in the mesolimbic pathway. For example, cocaine, opioids such as morphine and heroin, nicotine, amphetamines and alcohol. This can lead to addiction to these pleasurable sensations at the expense of all other priorities. These same skewed priorities can be seen in an experiment conducted by James Old and Peter Milner in 1954. In this experiment, rats were taught that if they pressed a lever, they would be rewarded with a pleasurable sensation. This sensation was caused through giving a brief burst of electrical stimulation to certain regions of the brain. The rats were actually prepared to press the lever at rates of up to 7,000 presses per hour, for hours on end. In fact, when they were forced to choose between food and the electrical stimulation, hungry rats often chose electrical stimulation even though they could starve to death through this choice. Rats' learnt behaviour won't last forever. It'll only last for as long as the reward is given. If you train a rat to push a lever to get a pellet and then stop giving the pellet as a reward, the rat will soon catch on and stop pushing the lever. So if you want to keep the rat pushing the lever often and for a long time without using a huge heap of rat pellets, you've got to come up with a new scheme. You could try only giving the rat a reward after 10 pushes and the rat will soon learn to pace itself to that number. Alternatively, you could give a rat a pellet if it has pushed the lever 10 times in 2 minutes, which will also result in pacing. In these cases, the ratio of lever pushing to energy used must be rewarding enough for the rat, or it will stop pressing the lever. The best technique that will get the rats pushing the lever often and for a long time involves randomising the reward. So, one time, the rat has to push the lever 10 times in 2 minutes. The next time, it must push 10 times in 30 seconds to get a treat. Or, pushing the lever 10 times will give a pellet first off, but the next go, the rat may have to push 200 or 103 or 2 times before it gets its reward. By randomising the conditions for each pellet, the rat can't pace itself because it doesn't know what the requirements are to get the next pellet. Sound familiar? That's right. Gambling, in particular poker machines, operates on this very reward scheme. You don't pace yourself according to when the reward will come, as you just don't know when that will be. For all you know, if you press the lever just one more time, you'll get a magnificent reward. Thank you, Amy. That was the ever-rewarding Amy Bullen there with The Science of Reward.
have a problem. If you need it sorting out right now, maybe you can call the 118118 118118 is a directory inquiries phone number in the UK that has recently expanded to answer any question that you put to us, no matter how big or how small. We thought we might test out 118118 with some of the unsolved questions from the Mr. Science Show and then a little bit of maths. Ah, I love helping people 118, but let's do more than numbers. Great idea, 118. Cinema listings. Train times. What else, 118? Advice. Recommendations. The voice of 118118 will be played by the AT&T text-to-speech synthesizer. My first question to them, can you recycle condoms? In general, condoms are made of latex and are not recyclable. It is probably better to dispose of your used condoms in the rubbish. The next question we asked them was a maths one. How many colours do you need to colour a political map of the world such that no two bordering countries are the same colour? For colour theorem... Any plant separate head into regions. The regions may be colored using four colors in such a way that no two adjacent regions receive the same. Well, yes, that answer is pretty good. The four-color theorem is correct, although it is just a theorem and no one has yet conclusively proven that it's true. I then got my co-editor at Plus Magazine, Marion, involved, and she was less forgiving with some of their answers. Marion asked, Can any even number bigger than two be written as the sum of two primes? Every even number bigger than two can be written as a sum of two primes. Thank you. But that's wrong, said Marion. Two is the only even prime. But that's got nothing to do with the question. Every even number bigger than two can be written as a sum of two primes. Still wrong, said Marion. No charge. Please direct any questions to our customer service department. Well, we were a bit harsh there asking 118118 an unproven conjecture. The Goldback conjecture postulates that every even number greater than 4 can be written as the sum of two odd primes. And we had to finish up with a couple of big questions. One of the biggest, can science disprove God? It is a personal decision for you to make. Everything was created, therefore decide if you believe it was by someone, some being, or a metaphysical force. Nice answer. And now an even bigger one. Should you have sex before sport? Various studies have been carried out to examine the possibility that intercourse before a sporting event drains an athlete of their physical ability. Well, that's not quite an answer. To test out 118118 for yourself, if you're in the UK, just dial 118118. Mark is very good looking. Lachlan Watmore on guitar.
Now, we want to say a big thank you also to Oscar from Newtown, who just called in, but the police came up behind him whilst he was on his mobile phone, and so he had to cut off his phone call. So if Oscar would like to call back and perhaps let us know the pickup line you were about to call in with, because the guys on the phones are, are looking a little bit lonely, let us know. And uh, Victoria, you have a couple more scientific pickup lines that you'd like to share with us right now. Actually, I might once again push in just before Victoria. Um, actually, I've got a question for you, Victoria. Oh, yes, Patrick. Do you know the difference between a hamburger and a blowjob? I know I don't. Want to do lunch? Hey, hey. Ooh. Ooh. Ooh, did we actually say that? Not very science. <laughs> what time is it? Yeah. Mm. Well, here's another one I like to use uh, just, just to see how sharp they are. Um, hey, Patrick, did yeah. we go to different schools together? Um... Hmm. Oh, dear. Well. Did you go to different schools together? Yes. What are you that talking about? <laughs> oh, no. that was it in itself. It's that was it, good. yeah. We sort of run out of the science-y ones, so we yeah. just went we, back to... Oh, okay. We just resorted. Another, another one that's dear to my heart is, um, what do you say we get behind this rock and get a little bolder? Yes, we've Ooh. moved along from the scientific <laughs> ones just into the bad pickup lines. Oh, no. And come up with a better pickup line than that. It mustn't be very hard. <laughs> and there you have it. That's about all we have today in this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, if you have any feedback, comments, suggestions, or passionate praise, or even if you'd like to contribute to Diffusion and perhaps hear yourself on the radio or perhaps write some stories for us or some pickup lines, then send an email to diffusion at 2scr.com. That's diffusion at 2scr.com. If you want to find out more about Diffusion itself, you can log on to our website at www.diffusionradio.com and there you can subscribe to our podcast. You've been listening to Diffusion across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Contributing to the program today were Victoria Bond, Ian Wolfe, Amy Bullen and Patrick Ruby. Diffusion was produced by Ian himself and it has been hosted by me, Mark West. Join us inside your audio device of choice, perhaps an iPod, perhaps however you like to listen to us, for more Science Wondering next week on the Diffusion Science radio show. We're going to go out with a sentence of sorts in Kong's Vineyard, or something like that, Victoria, by Of Montreal. Ciao. We'll see you next week. <laughs>